talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. Welcome to It's Good Except It Sucks, a movie by movie and television series by television series hurtle through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time, we're taking a look at Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings, which hit cinemas on August 16th, 2021, when, if you preferred, you could have seen Ken Loach being expelled from the Labour Party, Martin Scorsese filming Killers of the Flower Moon, but only if you were on set as it hasn't come out yet, or Jennifer Aniston's love life being speculated on as she was rumoured to be dating Ross, the largest friend. I'm Gareth Hirons, and you'll find out what I have to say about it throughout the course of this chat, but also here with his thoughts on Shang-Chi is writer and broadcaster Tim Wer- Tim, where can people find you? Hello, Gareth. Well, as you suggest, normally they can find me hosting this, which they should know because, you know, I assume this isn't the first one. Actually, this might be the first one a lot of people listen to because this film has gone really, really big. But let's stick to the point for the moment. Normally you can find me hosting this, also hosting Looks Unfamiliar, the show about all the things that you remember that nobody else ever seems to. You can find all of those and more at timworthington.org. I'm also hopefully, hopefully putting out a few new self-published books soon, including possibly one based on it's good except it sucks excellent stuff so before we go any further tim what happens in shang chi in the legend of the ten rings shang chi who's the son of wenwu who's a centuries old criminal mastermind who owns a set of ten bracers with ancient mystical properties was raised as the ultimate living weapon but he's living undercover in san francisco because his father sent him there on an assassination mission when he was 15 and he decided not to go home and his sister shaling has also done a bunk to macau where she runs an online underground gambling fight club that a lot of mcu characters pass to pay him for money. Then one day Wenwu sent a load of his weird bastards like Razor Fist and Death Dealer to bring them back because he wants them back in the Ten Rings compound because he believes that with their help he can bring their late mother back from the other side of a mystical portal in her mysterious home village Tarlo. But they realise he's both dangerous and insane and he's deluded as well and well they need to stop him and they've only got Sean Chi's foul mouth mate Katie, a chicken pig called Morris and Trevor Slattery the actor from Liverpool to help them. So not that much going on then. So I remember you telling me how excited you were about there being a Shang-Chi movie some considerable time ago. I have to say I'm not familiar with the character myself, so obviously the next question is, how much did you know about Shang-Chi and his little corner of Marvel's continuity before you saw this? Well, quite a lot, but in a different way it seems for a lot of people reviewing this, which I'll come back to in a second, but the most important thing 
thing is that when I first mentioned to you that I was excited about this, which, you know, wasn't that long ago, really, because I was thinking about this has been a very quickly made movie. And in fact, it's mentioned as new news in an edition that looks unfamiliar with Gary Bainbridge. It's also been on It's Good to Accept It Sucks a couple of times, where we mentioned with incredulity that it's going to be, quote, a Shang-Chi film. That's what I always called him. It's kind of my real accent slipping out a bit, you know, Shang-Chi. But it is officially Shang-Chi, according to the film. And I knew quite a lot about him because I never really saw when I was younger. I think he was originally in Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, which was a... It was just after the comics code was abolished and Marvel were a bit freer to do different things. It's what technically is known as the Bronze Age of comics starts then, where it becomes more experimental with other genres. There's a lot more social realism, a lot more... I don't like to say violence, but, you know, they gave a rougher edge to stories and characters like Blade and Cloak and Dagger came out of that. But this was a really blatant attempt to cash in on the martial arts craze of the early 70s. And, you know, as I say, I think it was originally Deadly Hands of Kung Fu. He was in alongside Iron Fist and the Daughters of the Dragon, who were Misty Knight and Colleen Wing, who a lot of people will know. And also some characters that never really appeared anywhere else, like White Tiger, who was a Puerto Rican martial artist, and the Sons of the Dragon, who were a bit kind of false name because it's three men and a woman, and they're all linked by a magic amulet. But Shang-Chi went into his own comic, Master of Kung Fu, which ran for a couple of years, and is now, as we will come back to in much more detail, a little bit of an issue, because originally, one of the things they did to usher in this post-comics code age was bring in a lot of well-known characters from, you know, pulp literature, and quite importantly, often ones that the copyright was no longer in place on. So, like, Dracula, Conan the Barbarian, and so on. And Fu Manchu, who was originally Shang-Chi's father, which, you know, they originally abandoned due to rights issues over the character, but I think they would have had to get rid of him anyway, because Fu Manchu, you know, famous, legendary pulp villain in a lot of movie series in the 30s and 40s and so on, but there were already huge complaints about the inherent stereotypes in the character, so they did move on. They renamed his father Zheng Zhu, which is, you know, it's a little like Wenwu, but they toned him down from, you know, the original Fu Manchu version. But the most important thing was, when I first encountered Shang-Chi, you see, a lot of the reviews have gone on about it's an updating the original stories, which owed a lot, and he owed a lot visually to Bruce Lee. You know, the kind of big boss era films, the whole martial arts boom, which, let's be honest about it, you know, they're not as difficult as Fu Manchu is now, but even some of those films, as great as they are, time has moved on, and in their own way, they've got stereotypes that maybe wouldn't be looked on too kindly now. The whole thing is cyclical. A lot of it needs to be updated, but when I first saw him, it was when he'd been, his headline comic had come to an end. He was kind of cut loose. He was relocated to New York, you know, amongst the vigilantes, amongst the street-level characters. He'd occasionally show up in things like the Avengers and the Defenders, or just like in other people's, in Spider-Man and so on. The main pursuits were dating women, sharing pizza with Luke Cage, saying, well, that's what we get when you have a white iron fist, and living with his pet monkey that he rescued from a vivisection lab. I really <coughs> liked him, because at that point, he was free of sort of, you know, the martial arts cliches trappings. He was that kind of character, but loose in the dangerous streets of New York. And then later on, there was a bit where they pulled him back more towards that and became sort of a mentor to the X-Men, which I didn't really, it didn't work for me, because I have some problems with how highfalutin the X-Men get anyway, and there are all kinds of stories where, like, he'd be hitting Wolverine with a big stick, saying, ah, do you not see? Which is <laughs> it's less interesting than it sounds, believe me. But more recently, they've kind of gone for a fusion between the two. You know, he has returned to New York quite a lot. And I say more recently, it's a while ago now, but when they did the second Secret Wars series, and there were a lot of one-shot spin-off backstory comics set in Battle World, which is kind of an idealised version of each character's sort of world, etc. 
experience. There was an issue of Master of Kung Fu that went in with that, where it was kind of a fusion of the two Shang-Chi scenarios, where all the masters of different disciplines, like him, Iron Fist, Moon Knight, Spider-Woman, had to defeat Zhu but couldn't work together to do it. And there's a lot of humour in that, like Shang-Chi's really annoyed because he's just started a beer. And that seems to have been the impetus for this, because my whole thought was, how are they going to do it? Are they going to do it like the original comics, or like I know him? And they did both. Yeah, there's a great streak of fun-loving that goes through this film. You won't have to wait long to see the character and his friend Katie, who we'll come to a little bit later, cutting loose, as you say. And it really brings a lot of humanity to a character that could otherwise have been a bit of a blank slate. I think so. I think one important thing they've done is that Shang-Chi in the comics, there's a little more to him than just, well, I say the being a master martial artist, but it's literally, he's the master of all martial arts, including meditation, chi energy, like in one of the X-Men ones, he recognises that Jean Grey's the Dark Phoenix because he senses the different chi energy. Playing those flute things as well, he seems to be a master of. And to take it back to basics, which I think was deliberate, to take away all of those trappings, because again, that's something we're going to talk about in a lot more detail. I think that left a lot of room for humour and humanity and action, because there are characters in this that you don't expect to have depth that do that you feel a lot of sympathy it's not often you'll watch a film and think you'll end up feeling some sympathy for a you know huge Romanian guy with a machete for an arm but they do they give them all some gravitas really and none more so I would argue than Wen Wu who turns out not just to be a rehabilitation of a racist stereotype in Fu Manchu the previous father of Shang-Chi but also actually a rehabilitation of a Fu Manchu-esque Chinese stereotype villain from the Marvel Universe themselves the mandarin yes that's a really important thing which if anyone's seen the assembled documentary about shang chi and legend of ten rings or i appreciate it might just be made at this stage listen to the commentary on the blu-ray there's a lot of talk from simu lu himself and destin daniel cretton the director and dave callaham the writer about how now they wanted to move away from stereotypes but they didn't want to in effect throw the baby out with the bathwater. that there are positive characteristics and values as in artistic values to all of these characters and they took the things that worked from Fu Manchu from the Mandarin who I've got plenty more to say about took those things and made them into something that succeeds on every level and they've done that with a few things like jumping ahead a bit but the dragon the great protector is kind of inspired by a long-running Shang-Chi character Fin Fang Foom who's a dragon who's a bit more like visually the sort of dragon you'd see on you know the walls of a takeaway <laughs> which again it works in the context of a comic was more dreamlike you can't really do that on the screen these days you know I had thought what are they going to do about that especially because there'd already been I think Tony Stark has some artwork of Fim Fang Foom on his walls at some point and I had thought that's how they're going to get away with not featuring him is you know I would have had him on the wall but you know the whole idea of the dragon being called the great protector that they've gone back to legends and you know made it into this can you say heroic about a dragon but heroic self-sacrificing figure just determined to save the people that it I don't know whether it's a he or a she loves that kind of approach really pays off when you don't just write something off completely you say how can we take this thing because the whole thing about saying problematic as opposed to wrong indicates to me that there is good and bad not equally weighted but in something you know there is that it's problematic because you can't discard it completely and you know what an effect the decision to take the things that 
you can't discard completely and use them to your advantage is hard I think that's absolute that should be applauded from the rooftops that really really I didn't think about that until a couple of days after I'd seen it but that has really sort of floored me that has I think it's a great decision so the bits of the Mandarin that we do get that is a character that I'm more familiar with just from his original run against the old commie smashing version of Iron Man back in the day was that he did actually have 10 rings so you know they've kept hold of that one I must admit I was a little bit disappointed that the rings are braces in the film but at the same time sort of from a visual point of view you can't really see 10 rings no and also the thing about I mean yeah, they couldn't really do the Mandarin as the Mandarin was in the comics because again like say you can play with that a bit more he kind of in the modern incarnation messes with the fact he's known as the Mandarin he finds it amusing he uses it his advantage and also like you said they are 10 actual rings he doesn't look unlike Ringo Starr <laughs> well I was looking at the mystical rings and I thought <laughs> why don't I have my own rings that are mystical and that's how I invented the cosmic cube there had been the whole thing about they tried to avoid doing the Mandarin in the past in the sense that they've been built up in the first couple of Iron Man films and then in Iron Man 3 you get the brilliant switch and bait thing where the 10 rings headed by the Mandarin inverted commas are threatening the world via Bin Laden-esque video messages and then it turns out to be Trevor Slattery who doesn't have a clue what's going on and the thing is again they've taken something relatively problematic now and made it they've given it a good context in that there is a lot of criticism now with the first Iron Man film in particular where you know you've got the terrorist hostage videos with Tony Stark which look quite offensive now at the time they were literally based on what was on the news almost every single day and I would say the swings and roundabouts thing about are people forgetting about those that easily that doesn't sit well with me and in the third one obviously the whole thing is that it's Trevor Slattery playing an Arab terrorist leader who is not that again I think has worn a bit badly but in this bringing Trevor Slattery back to kind of well when Wu expresses his disdain for what they did rather than anger in terms of stealing his name and his image and Trevor Slattery basically says oh it's a bit offensive now <laughs> you know that is a tremendous way of not having to cut off something that, you know when they made that first Iron Man film I don't think they were even certain to be making a second one and the Incredible Hulk almost saw to it that they didn't but you no know, they weren't thinking that far ahead they weren't thinking this thing we've done as a commentary on the world in front of us right at the moment might present problems 20 odd films down the line and again hats off to them for grabbing hold of that by the horns and saying okay we've got to make this okay how do we do it and that's how they did it and again superlative I can't think of a better way of doing that absolutely now moving on from old outdated offensive depictions of Chinese and Eastern culture I felt like the film made a really good point and early on of depicting sort of modern Chinese culture and American Chinese culture as well one of the revelations of this film for me was Aquafina as Katie whose family we meet very early on and it's a really sort of organic feeling scene that just really paints their current sort of situation really well I think yes absolutely and you've got the whole thing there the grandmother being she's not even traditional she's relatively traditional she maintains traditions is the best way of saying it probably but she seems 
relatively Americanized, and the younger brother is a complete slacker. But, you know, there is that bit later on when Wenwu says, American girl, what is your name? Shang says, her name's Katie, and says, no, your Chinese name. And Aquafina, I mean, she's fantastic throughout it, but she pulls a face that completely captures the idea. Nobody has ever asked Katie that before. And in fact, it doesn't occur to the viewer that she would even have one until she's asked. Yeah, that was a great moment for the character. In what I think is an entire film of great moments for that character. Now, I'm well aware that not everybody is as keen on her as I am. One of my friends recently described her as the worst thing in the movie. But I think her friendship with Shang-Chi is believable and keeps the film grounded. It's also really interesting having a non-superhero around for some of the action sequences. It just makes the danger more real as there's someone there who can't magically succeed in the situation and just has to run, hide, panic and in one memorable scene hold on for dear life. Yes, but also it's great as well that she isn't incapable, that, you know, she isn't terrified or running and hiding or somebody that Shong feels he has to hide because he gets her to drive. We've not even mentioned some spectacular fight sequences, including one where a bus is cut in half while he's fighting with Razor Fist. And he says to Katie, you take the wheel because she is a good driver and a daredevil driver as well. And he has faith that she can drive half a bus full of passengers to safety. And it's that, it's the fact that she joins in in the big battle at the end with a bow and arrow, having never really fired one before. And it's great to have a sidekick like that. And she is incredibly foul-mouthed as well. But then Aquafina in her musical career is as well. I would suggest don't go and look up any of her songs if you're at work. No, but as soon as you get out of work, please do. We actually haven't really spoken very much about the action sequences in this film, but I think it's fair to say that it takes a lot of cues from 70s kung fu movies to the extent where I got about 10 minutes in, I've got, got this big note written in front of me, which is just like, oh, this is a kung fu movie. And then what was I expecting? But the choreography in the opening fight scene between Wen Wu and his bride-to-be is just absolutely fantastic. It is. It's aggression and love and sex and hatred and defence and attack and everything all at the same time. They play it so wonderfully, the pair of them. It's like cross between the ballet and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Whoever put these action sequences together really deserves to be singled out for praise because the massive battles are fantastic and the one-on-one fights just as good, but in completely different ways. And there's a lot of humour in them as well, which you wouldn't expect from big set pieces like that. Like the bit where they're fighting outside the huge tower block that the fight club's in, running along scaffolding and so on. There were jokes in that, like physical jokes as well as verbal jokes. And it really reminds me of, because the first place I ever really saw Tony Leung, who plays Wenwu, was in Jonathan Ross's documentary series, The Incredibly Strange Film Show, where he did a lot of episodes about Hong Kong cinema and Jackie Chan and so on. And obviously he was in quite a lot of that. And this is very much in the spirit of those films. You know, it has got that blend of high action and high comedy throughout it. And, you know, incredibly emotional bits as well, but they don't get in the way of anything. Yeah, it's very, very well paced, actually. There are moments where the foot is off the gas, but there's good reason for it every time. It's not like shall we say, Age of Ultron, for instance, which just kind of just dies for 20 minutes in the middle, largely during Hawkeye's origin story. Everything feels like it's there for a reason and actually keeps the film moving through its slower sections. Well, yeah, and it's so relentlessly brilliant and so dazzling that it's actually, I keep thinking of, oh, I must mention that, I must mention that, and it all just, like, comes at you at once, a bit like when we henchmen, really. One important thing to mention is, mentioned there in the recap of the plot of the film. Not much of this so far. Xia Ling, Shang-Chi's sister, is kind of based on two characters. Zhang Baoyu, who is his old
older sister is more, you know, political and scheming. And Sister Dagger, who's his younger sister, who's a weapons expert, and actually uses that. What's the actual technical name for the twirly round thing with the spikes on it? Rope dart. Rope dart. Okay, that's a more prosaic name than I expected. But she has, you know, she isn't just a maladjusted sister character. She has her own arc and her own depth. And despite being the one who wasn't favoured by their father, appears more sympathetic to his aims. I mean, she does ultimately decide, yes, he has to be stopped, but she is more accepting of his intentions in general than Shang-Chi is, who wants no part of anything at all. They are the two characters that remain the most opposed out of any of them, which is interesting because there are closer bonds between all of the others, including her and Katie, than between her and Shang-Chi. It is explained why why that is because she felt he abandoned her when he absconded and they can never quite get past that that is a great undercurrent to have there because there's no big forgiveness or reunion about it it's just left hanging there and it's never quite resolved so all of this takes place in the real world if we're well actually within the earth of the marvel cinematic universe although you'd barely know marvel had anything to do with this aside from two sort of incredibly blatant cameos in the fight club which almost seem kind of pointedly blunt, I think is the right way to put it, in terms of, here's your Marvel characters, now here's the rest of the film. Well, I'm wondering how many you actually spotted, because who were you thinking of there? The two people we see fight are Abomination and Wong from Doctor Strange. Abomination from The Incredible Hulk, obviously. I must admit, I didn't really spot anybody else. There's also, in one of the fight arenas, Helen, one of Black Widows from Black Widow, is fighting in it. And also, Claire from the Spider-Man films is a passenger on the bus and he starts trying to grade the fight while you know, <laughs> Fist is literally slashing away at the bus walls <laughs> That's interesting that they just put those, like you say, the Wong and Abomination thing was definitely to set up Wong for later in the movie, but also Abomination is apparently coming back after all this time, which again gives me hope that we are going to see all the TV characters again, because if they can bring back him and Betty Ross, who haven't been seen since 2008, they can bring back Iron Fist and Luke Cage, surely. But yes, it is great. That I think it's a deliberate thing, because they really wanted this character to stand on his own, and so, you know, the continuity bits are that isn't there a poster about are you suffering from post blip blues or something and you know there are a couple of references to various past events but not in a way that drive the character or drive the storyline or get in the way for viewers I think it's really important that they did just allow him centre stage well I say centre stage centre stage with Katie and Sheerling but you know that they just took this moment to absolutely allow because you know it's rarely been commented on the first 10 minutes of this movie are in Mandarin. For all Ken Loach might like to complain, when did you last get that in a mainstream film? When did you ever get that in a mainstream film? They took no shortcuts in making this an important incursion into the mainstream by Asian cinema, and they really pulled it off. Absolutely, and towards the end of the film, we get to Tarlo, which is, I think I pronounced that right, which is probably best described as the place where all the Chinese mythology comes from. Pretty much, yes, yeah, and here's one of those things where, as a comics reader, as a young I did used to think how many far off mystical lands are there in Marvel's universe nearly as many as there are frontier towns what I liked was they've done something very different with this and the fact that it is just a couple of huts really but that's the physical representation of a much bigger they indicate the village goes 
on almost forever. It's just outside our line of vision. It's guarded by a living forest that they have to navigate through, which Trevor Slattery and Morris are guiding them through by car, saying stay in the pocket while all these trees are looming towards them. That is where they encounter Trevor Slattery, actually, who the cheer that went up in the cinema when he first appeared, because you know, obviously he's in Iron Man 3, and he was in the one-shot All Hail the King as well, where he's taken away by one of Wenwu's men, who says he wants a word with you about what you've been doing with his name. That was just an inspired move, because it stopped things from getting too action-focused and too mystical as well, to have this, like, bewildered Toast of London-style old lovey, just being very confused about what was going on, but not too confused to talk to Morris, the aforementioned chicken pig, who he's befriended <laughs> while he's basically, they were going to assassinate him, and then he did a Shakespearean speech lamenting his demise, and they kept him on the sort of court jester, but he befriended Morris, who Wenwu had abducted from Tao Lo on the previous visit. They are a great double act, without Morris ever actually saying anything. <laughs> and I did wonder if Morris is actually there, as a kind of proxy replacement for Shung's... That's another thing you can't really do with a film these days, is to have a pet monkey sidekick. To be honest with you, there's all kinds of reasons why that's not a good idea. And was it lateral thinking from that that brought us Morris, who I've seen people on Twitter saying, I want a Morris spin-off series on Disney+. Plus. And I don't entirely disagree with that. One thing that I noticed about the film is that it's very video game-like. Stick with me on this one, because obviously a lot of action films these days, and indeed a lot of the Marvel films, are that way, specifically for there to be a spin-off video game. There wasn't one for this, and that seems very strange to me, because it lends itself perfectly to that kind of storytelling. The opening itself is very much like Dynasty Warriors. You have the whole sequences on the bus and on the bamboo scaffolding outside the fight club. Indeed, the fight club itself. You could even have a driving bonus game where you have to stay in the pocket for points. <laughs> I just think, you know, you know me, I'm pro video games. I feel that's a little bit of a lost opportunity. Yes, I don't know what their plans are there. I mean, I should say, I've got the soundtrack album because I absolutely love the soundtrack, which is supervised by Joel P. West. But it's this incredible blend of Chinese classical and religious music. And there's bits of kind of kung fu movie cliche in there, you know, deliberately used in an ironic way. And there's a lot of hip hop as well. And you have got things like the obsession that Shang-Chi and Katie have with Hotel California, which they're later seen singing at karaoke with Wong. You both have a long journey ahead of you. Go home. Get some rest. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah, we probably should do that. Or... so well in that it is a soundtrack that's found its own niche in the same way the Black Panther one did. Again, like with taking the best elements of those characters, taking everything good and bad that you would associate with the soundtrack for this kind of film and kind of driving them together into something that really works. You know what it reminded me of? And again, this is something admittedly based on Japanese culture that would not be considered acceptable now. Do you remember the Channel 4 show Banzai? Yes, yes I do. The gaming show where let's steer away from the actual content of it 
for now, but it had this amazing soundtrack that kind of had indie, 70s, Japanese, prog rock, electronica, everything that you'd associate with that kind of thing was kind of hammered together there. And they've done kind of the same thing here, but fortunately with something much more culturally sensitive. I mean, one thing I really want to say, you know, have I said I love this film? That's, uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's quite come across yet. Well, I don't think you have to say it explicitly. Let's <laughs> read that. But I think that one thing that's really astonished me about it is how great it was considering how quickly it was made and under such difficult circumstances. Because as I understand it, principal photography was supposed to begin in February 2020. And then obviously it couldn't because of lockdown and social distancing. And then Simu Liu actually, I think it was the second day of when they eventually resumed filming in July, tested positive that they had to shut it down for a bit. It was all done under social distancing. And I think it wrapped in September or October. October 2020 so it was shot across three months under social distancing and bloody hell you would not know it at all and this would actually have been out earlier I think it was destined for May 2021 but it had to be held back because delays of Disney plus stuff and Black Widow and so on and when you think Black Widow and Eternals have both been ready to go for nearly two years and they've had although I love both of them they've had a more mixed reception than this and this was almost just whacked out at tremendous speed and the virtually nothing nothing wrong with it at all in fact the one thing that I thought in fact well the two things I thought were going to go really wrong were I never liked Razor Fist in the comics because in that he has two machete arms which is the stupidest thing ever but in this you know they make him a Romanian orphan that was rescued by Wenwu and given not a nice purpose but this purpose and they do show humanity to him when he agrees to join forces with the citizens of Tao Lo to fight whatever is on the other side of the portal that is stealing their souls and also the fact that he is heartbroken when Shang-Chi, Katie, Jelling and Trevor Slattery escape in his car they steal his car which has got his name graffitied on the side you know that does show that inside he's still kind of the insecure orphan boy and in fact there's a great deleted scene on a Blu-ray with him and Katie talking about how they're both misfits that's why we should fight together but obviously they cut that out to give the we will work together joke a bit more impact I think without discussion his turnaround is funnier but that brings me around to the other thing I thought was going to be a problem was Death Dealer the masked henchman in kind of a he's in the sort of a traditional mask and again a character that I'd never thought was much to in the comics but my main problem here was that it appeared to be the same character as Taskmaster was in Black Widow and I was thinking oh really is that going to fly doing the same thing two films in a row but they really played down Death Dealer who is then immediately dispatched by the things coming out from the portal so that was quite amusing to me I had thought that would be the one week link and it wasn't but just to have done something this good you know it does go to show that sometimes when you're under immense pressure that can really give that extra push that extra edge and the other interesting thing really is as far as I can tell originally this was supposed to come out after Eternals maybe quite a bit after it and there is a bit in the post credits that does link into Eternals and they've obviously been transposed now so when I was watching Eternals, I thought, oh, right, yeah. But it would have been the other way round, which is a bit... How can that work? A developing storyline swapped round. How are they able to do that? that is, I cannot praise that enough. There's an interchange caused by, you know, a global pandemic, and it still works. We should, of course, cover the post-credit sequences, because having not really entered into the Marvel Universe that much, Shang-Chi and Katie are basically dragged kicking and screaming into it in the last scene of the film. Yes, because they meet up with their friends who've been kind of 
mocking them in the inaugural scenes for not doing much with their lives because they're working as car valets and basically joyriding the cars all the time spending like singing karaoke whereas you know one of their school friends in particular has moved on quite a bit in the legal profession but then they're relating the whole story to her and her boyfriend who think they're making fun of them then Wong appears out of a cosmic portal and says you need to come with me because when Shung took the Ten Rings and Wenwu and yeah in the brilliant bit I don't know many people picked up on this they are sort of cobalt blue when Wenwu has them when they go into Shung's arms they become gold and you know bright and illuminated but at that moment Wong and presumably Doctor Strange notices the very very strange disturbance of the mystic forces and so needs to work with Shung and Katie to work out what's going on and then we get that first post credit scene where he's examining the Ten Rings says they are calling to something you may have noticed in Eternals what they were calling to and what Harry Styles has to do with that <laughs> but he's consulting Captain Marvel who appears to get pinged by a dating app and disappears and Bruce Banner who has his arm in the sling from the snap I assume neither of them recognise it and Wong determines that they're going to need to investigate it more but he thinks everyone should get some rest first and they say no let's go do some karaoke instead which is brilliant and one of the great things about this film is that Shog and Katie for all of their travels fundamentally don't change because they didn't need to in the first no. place exactly they are the same people they don't go on any journeys which again I think maybe the lack of reconciliation with Sherling is playing into that they don't need any kind of emotional kind of pendulum really or you know a huge pivot in their lives they are placed in the middle of this madness as themselves and they are more than capable of dealing with it and again that's quite a new thing really which leads us to our second slightly more insular post credit scene yes we see Sherling apparently in her bedroom but it turns out to be Wenwu's compound the Ten Rings compound Razor Fist appears and says everyone's ready and they're all practicing martial arts in the courtyard and John John their kind of Gokwan assistant from the fight club is there so I don't know what he's going to do but they're all sort of lining up on kind of war footing and it ends with the Ten Rings will return Ooh So could Shang-Chi find himself pitched against his sister in the future? I really enjoyed this film One thing that I would say just judging by how quickly it was produced and when it was produced you know the three month turnaround like you say on sort of principal photography and then to be released in 2021 albeit delayed just think about that when you're watching a thousand bad one man shows about lockdown is that the actual name of the thing that's going to have a thousand comedians doing one man shows in one (laughs) show (laughs) that's the kind of expanded universe I don't want if it gets them out of podcasting I'm all for it can we put them all in the fight club to (laughs) to fight like (laughs) Dave Gorman or something (laughs) only if it's abomination against all of them (laughs) so in closing one last question Tim if you had the power of the ten rings what would you do with them well there is a wall at my local train station which serves no purpose that is really annoying me so I would probably punch that into a pile of kind of brick dust and everyone would have much more room to stand that is a fantastic use of the Ten Rings, I think. Tim, thank you, and Excelsior. Do I have to say Excelsior in kind of an equivalent to the way I used to say Shang-Chi? So, Excelsior? I don't... <laughs> <laughs> if you've enjoyed this, don't forget you can find more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org.